once again, welcome to uh, another episode of PFL. Uh, a lot going on, uh, of course, uh, in Knoxville and Rocky Top uh, in the country as well. My co-host, uh, Joe Rexroad, Nashville columnist, senior writer, is here with me. Um, Joe, it's a sad day uh, on Wednesday uh, in the state of Tennessee. Johnny Majors, uh, longtime coach for Tennessee, obviously, um, a player as well, finished second in the Heisman. Uh, he's got his jersey retired. Um, he died. He was 85. Uh, I spent a lot of yesterday talking to people about him. And, and honestly, when we started yesterday, you know, obviously I've covered Tennessee enough. I'm aware of Johnny Majors, but I don't have a lot of personal frame of reference for him. You know, I'd, I think I'd met him once or twice, talked to him like once or twice. But, you know, I never watched him play. I'm not familiar with his teams. I kind of knew a little bit about it, but but not very much. Um, and so spending yesterday learning about him, I, I got a real sense of why he is so beloved uh, in Tennessee. Um, we can get into a little bit more of this later. Um, but but for you, what, what was your major takeaway with sort of seeing the reaction and, 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 and of course, um, you know, talking about and thinking about Johnny Majors yesterday, or what, Wednesday, Wednesday, yeah. Yeah, David, well, as you know, I've been working on um, a big piece on Johnny, and we'll still uh, write that, and I, as, as I went through that process, which included, I actually talked to him many times last week for like a collective, I would say, three or four hours, um, and there, as, as always, fantastic conversations. I was lucky enough to meet Johnny in 2008, he got an award in Michigan. So that was, and I wrote about him then. And then, you know, being here for the last four years, not a lot, but a few conversations and, and then had the idea to write about him. Because honestly, David, I believe Johnny Majors was the greatest living legend of Tennessee football. Um, and that was one of the points. Um, now that's, now I think a lot of people might, you know, immediately think Peyton Manning, um, but when you can when you consider the playing career, um, and as you mentioned, well, of course they both know what it's like to finish second in the Heisman. Uh, Paul Hornung, by the way, won it that year, and uh, Jim Brown also a finalist that year. But you can combine the playing career with what he did as a coach. Uh, I mm-hmm. think that Johnny Majors. I think you've seen this outpouring of love, um, but you know what's great is that he turned 85 years old on May 21st and in our conversations last week there was a couple days where I, w- I was trying to get him and he was like man I have to call and you know I think he actually said text back everyone who because he had like more than 150 people who reached out to him <laughs> so and he was like I'm calling every single one of them um just an amazing guy like just such a just full of life and just such a great personality and you know to me like his memory is incredible now there's a story now this is in his book but he could recite this story um from you know world war ii ended and and one of the things that was rationed he was a you know young kid one of the things that was rationed at the time was bubble gum okay so johnny majors you know called around and this is in Lynchburg. Uh, of course, he's known for playing for Huntland, where his dad eventually coached him. His dad, of course, an all-time coaching legend. His family, like the, I think, easily the greatest football family in Tennessee history. 
But he called around all these stores, like, to, trying to find bubblegum. He found a store. We have bubblegum in stock. So he told some friends, um, and so they raced on their bikes, and his friend, who was nicknamed Chicken, I mean, he's telling me this story, like, like line for line what they said to each other last week. You know, his buddy Chicken got there first and bought all the gum in the store, you know. And so he, they, they had it out. They had this big fight. Um, eventually, Chicken agreed to, you know, uh, like, I guess, sell it to the other kids. But, like, that story and so many other football stories are so clear in his mind. You wrote about one of them, David, the first day on the field. When he's a little guy from Huntland. A lot of coaches told Farmer Johnson, what, what are we doing? Why are we recruiting this kid? Um, and first day, it was like, whoa. And, and uh, you know, General Robert Nealon was sitting in the stands, had just retired to become AD, retired from coaching. It was like, who is that? And, of course, he excitedly, you know, people people have read it or should read it, um, you know, on our site, David's terrific obituary. But, again, that's another, you know, story that he remembers clearly. His career, just incredible. If you think about as an assistant coaching uh, on Frank Broyles' staff with Jerry Jones and Jimmy Johnson winning a national title, what he did at Iowa State, I think, is way underrated. Very difficult play. You know this, David. Difficult place to win. And mm-hmm. that really – demonstrated was he was as a coach won a national title at Pitt his first class 83 members of his recruiting class at Pittsburgh <laughs> well Tony Dorsett's one of them which is a yeah but 83 guys in in the recruiting class and that eventually led to national title then of course Tennessee and all he did and and of course it didn't end well and that's something he took to the very end as well you know the um you know the 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 way that obviously he was People know the story well, and, and, and I will write more about this coming up soon as well. But obviously, Philip Fulmer took over when he had a quintuple bypass surgery in 1992. Johnny came back, but essentially, uh, people wanted Fulmer in that job. And also, David Cutcliffe as OC, a huge part of, I think, why that team functioned better um, during the time that Johnny was out. But of course, that, that's been a, a feud and bitterness over the years, But but I do think that and this is this has got to be my longest like just uh, right in, in the history of this podcast. I don't think I've just <laughs> talked for longer than this. But um, I, I could I can report with, with great confidence uh, that he was happy at the end and felt loved. Uh, you know, and of course he 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 lives uh, lived in, in the Knoxville area and actually was planning to. Go to some games this fall, and and really likes what he's seen, or really liked what he was seeing from Jeremy Pruitt. Yeah, I think um, you know you you talk about the the Mount Rushmore of Tennessee football: General Neyland, Philip Fulmer, Peyton Manning, and probably assuredly Johnny Majors. I'm not sure there's much room for debate on, on any of those four um, as it stands now. And, and when one of those guys, um, you know, dies, it's, it's, uh, it's a sad day um, for the program. And I, I think too, you know, again, I, it's tough for me to talk a ton because I, I didn't know him, but in the people that I talked to, I, I got a sense of how much it really did mean for him to be able to be back inside the program uh, after uh, Lane Kiffin took over and after, um, you know, Fulmer was gone uh, from being a head coach. And, of course, Tennessee has had some difficult times over the last 10 years. 
uh, 11 years. But bringing Johnny Majors back into the fold, I think, meant a lot to him. Um, and, and it's it's good to see someone you know live out their final years doing and being near something that they loved. And, and even as somebody who, who didn't know Johnny Majors, well, I don't have any meaningful memories in my life of, of Johnny Majors. Um, but it's it's nice to hear someone get to do that, and uh, and that was that was cool um, to, to to know that that happened. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because obviously there never should have been a day in the history of Tennessee football that Johnny Majors was not welcome in the building, and unfortunately there was a time, um, and it I think it's been huge for it was huge for him to be back in. Uh, that uh, reminds me of a quick story. So Ryan McGee, people know him from ESPN. Um, it's a Tennessee grad, and he was a he was a student assistant for Tennessee football. Actually, a senior in that uh, fall of '92. So I interviewed him for the piece I have coming up. But uh, he and he is very very close. What I, I I apologize for continuing to go present tense here. I really. He was very, very close with Johnny Majors and talked to him often still all the way to the end. But he told me that sometimes Johnny would show up at the building to like watch film and watch old film and stuff like that. And he would just like park outside the building and just, you know, leave his car and walk in. And they're like, Johnny, you know, they're going to give you a ticket. Like, it's Johnny Major's way. I mean, come on. <laughs> you, the street's named after me. You can't ticket me. So, But, no, I think uh, a huge thing for late in his life to be embraced and be able to have, you know, the, the kind of treatment that he should have had all along. Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's well said. Um, and I think uh, Johnny Major's legacy at Tennessee um, – speaks for itself um but there were a lot of people yesterday who wanted to speak for it and speak highly of it and uh i tell you what uh i've never had an easier time getting people on the phone than i did yesterday hey do you have some some time to talk about johnny majors yep give me a call um i think that says a lot uh shift gears here to what's going on in, in the present um, and, and, and the future of Tennessee football. Uh, I guess to quote uh, Tennessee's official Twitter account, the boys are back in town, or at least the first wave of st- staggered boys. Uh, Tennessee had a few players. Uh, yeah, I think they're, they're doing staggered waves uh, over the next week of players coming into the facility. Um, uh, involuntary, in-person activities um, will be... Starting June 8th, uh, my understanding is there's not going to be – you can't really throw a ball. It's going to be a lot of just kind of working out, conditioning work, that kind of thing. Um, but you're sort of back in the fold. The guys are back around together. And for the first time, Tennessee yesterday uh, released their plan for what they're going to do. And so uh, we wrote about that I since the SEC officially announced on May 22nd that uh, players are going to be back on or allowed to, to uh, work out again on June 8th. Kind of asked to talk to doctors, um, you know, called around, and Tennessee didn't make them available. So yesterday was the first time we've really seen their plan. Um, and, and honestly, um, it, it, was, it was pretty solid. Uh, for one, you know, props to Tennessee for every player that, that uh, shows up 
uh, is going to be tested immediately for uh, active infection with the nasal swab, uh, and then of course a blood test as well to see if there are antibodies that indicate if they've previously had the infection. Um, you know, I, I think the only hole in the plan, and I think this is a sport-wide problem, is the lack of consistent testing. You know, you talk to medical experts, and they're talking about test, 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 test. That's that's how you prevent the spread um, because, you know, a third of the people that contract the virus are asymptomatic. And, and I know that the college ball players are, are pretty low uh, amount of risk for this. But then the question becomes, of course, how many players, you know, have to be seriously ill or uh, put in the hospital or dealing with, um, you know, serious long-term issues, which we obviously don't know about, um, to make college football worth it. And I think you need to be safe. Um, and I think this speaks in some ways to uh, players not having a voice about the terms of their return. You, know, you look at the pro sports, players have unions, players associations. They can say, we want to come back, but here's what has to happen. In college, they say, hey, come back June 8th. Some schools might listen and say, hey, what do you guys want? What do we need? But but they're not under any obligation to uh, make that happen. They are going to test symptomatic individuals once um, things start rolling, um, and and hopefully this this plays out well. Um, you know, you hopefully that everything is fine. Um, but uh, you know, it does feel a bit of a half measure in that respect. Uh, but everyone's going to try to be as responsible as possible. But you know, the it's great they're testing everyone as soon as they get there. Um, not everyone's doing that. Not everyone's testing for antibodies, which can help as well, um, give you more education of what's going on. But again, this is a college sports problem. And, you know, I don't want to get too far in the weeds on the whys and the hows, but, you know, when you're operating as a nonprofit um, and you don't want to, uh, you know, pay players, you want them to subsidize the other sports on the campus, you, and you don't have any sort of reserve funds, and for lack of a better term, most college athletic departments are operating quote unquote paycheck to paycheck because they have to spend money in order to not make money. When you need a reserve of funds for, say, tests that can uh, help prevent the spread of a virus that has killed over 100,000 Americans, it's, you know, when, when people say we don't have the money, it's too expensive, and you just got $44 million from the SEC last year, I am I, uh, less than pleased, I guess, but this is, this is what it's going to be. No, I, I couldn't agree more with everything you said. And, and and also, I would add, like you said, I mean, we don't know everything about it. And, and clearly, it affects different people differently. I think that's pretty obvious. But Yeah, and the fact that they're are, not sure what what makes that there's there the, right. the, the lack of predictability is is really what is is uh, makes this difficult to deal with in a lot of ways. And, and the yeah, the common refrain is. You know, these are twenty-year-old kids, healthy. They're they're, you know, they're going to have a little cold. But again, you have older coaches, you have trainers, you have other older people who are more at risk also mm -hmm. around them. So it, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you, the money is there. It's very expensive, but you can find the money. Um, it, it's, it's particularly at the Power Five level. I mean, I think I have more sympathy when people talk about. You know the cost and the impact of that. You know at the group of five level, uh, I get that more. But at this level, the money's there. So I would, I think that more consistent testing, constant testing, is would be a much better way to go. And we will see how it goes. I think we're, I will be shocked if we don't see some situations where you have outbreaks, and then how does that get resolved? Yeah, I mean I, I understand that the. Um 
pandemic has put everyone in a, in a budget crunch in a lot of ways. Um, but player's health seems to be pretty important. And if you're going to put money anywhere, that seems like a place to put it. And, you know, this is the structure of, of college sports. So that's where we're at. <laughs> uh, it is what it is, David. Yeah, it is what it is, I suppose. Um, well, Joe, you know, we wanted to – obviously, a, a lot is going on um, naturally. You turn on the TV, um, you look on social media, you have a conversation with anyone. It's it's hard to avoid um, what is going on. Obviously, uh, the death of George Floyd in the video that was uh, subsequently released was, was a touch point. And I appreciate that people are listening. Um, people care right now. I, I, you know, we we want to get into this. I mean, I, to quote Jeremy Pruitt, uh, I'm a guy that uh, I want to talk about it, and and that's kind of you know what we're doing. I, I appreciated Jeremy Pruitt one talking to uh, you know me and taking some questions um, and actually you know talking in depth and 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 saying victims' names and and. Uh, and taking these things seriously, you know, Tennessee is set up, I think they're calling it a, a culture committee, um, essentially, um, and that's going to be players and staff, and T. Martin's going to head that up. Right now they're figuring out, you know, which players and staff are, are going to be kind of leading that and, and running the leadership there, but they want to make a change, and like he said, they want to use their platform to advocate um, for, for change and, and to fight racism, and uh, listen, I don't talk about this a lot, you know, I... I Honestly, a lot of it is I don't want to deal with the people that don't want to hear about it. You know, you hear, oh, it's virtue signaling. Oh, it's it's political correctness. This is not politics. It's not about, you know, uh, Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative. I think those are really um, silly labels in the first place. Uh, it's about America living up to the promise um, to its citizens. It's about forming a, a more perfect union. And... It's, it's about my lived experience and hoping that when I have kids, I don't have any net right now, that, that theirs can be a little bit better. Their experience can be a little bit better. Uh, I don't want them to have to deal with the same things um, that I did. Uh, the people who came before me didn't want me to fear doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, looking at someone the wrong way and being lynched for with no repercussions. We're not that far uh, away from that. You know, They wanted me to be able to vote. You know, they, you know, you go back further, they wanted me to be able to be free. We, we've taken steps toward progress. We're a long way from uh, equality, but we need to take those steps. And, and the next step right now is, is addressing um, some of the systemic issues, and we can get into that. Joe, from, from your perspective, what have you made um, of the last uh, week uh, in, in the country? Well, I, I mean, I hesitate, but, but I believe it. I, I do think this is different it feels different to me um and look <laughs> the bottom line is and of course there have been three senseless killings recently but you know for george I mean, george floyd lost his life and absolutely should not have um and so start there and just wipe away anything else that you want to try to answer that with um you know to, to, to justify it or to like you said divert it to politics um to me that is one thing that really bothers me is that when we start talking about race in this country and why things are it turns into yeah virtue signaling what i'm trying to think of some of the buzzwords identity politics uh um, yeah. you know 
radical left is not man this this is this is not about that politics is policy on how you're trying to solve problems and and frankly i i know i don't identify with either side i have very different feelings on different issues this is has nothing to do with politics this is humanity and so i think where I get frustrated, and, and frankly, David, I feel like like I shouldn't be angry or frustrated. I don't have a right to. The, the piece you guys wrote was really, really good and strong, and I'm glad we made it free for people, and I hope everyone read it. Um, you know, we had black staffers who just wrote about their experiences, what they encountered, because I think if you're a white person, and I've been this I, I oh we're way past all that stuff right oppression i mean we're you know we've made so much progress you want to you want to believe that and you're right of course it's not like it was before but try to to empathize try to put yourself in those shoes we can't know exactly what it's like but think about the idea of having to think about your race all the time because i hear that too oh i always got to make it about race imagine not having the choice and i you know and, and I, I really appreciate what you guys wrote, I also appreciate, and this comes to mind when I see people, you know, I saw a Facebook thing with Martin Luther King Jr. You know, he didn't loot anything and he changed the world, right? Or something like that. And it's like, yeah. And and how was he uh, perceived at the time when he was killed by mm -hmm. white people in this country? And you, you had an incredible line. Uh, Change is slow. It's despised in the moment and lionized by history. I mean that's that is a that is a brilliant line, David Oven. That's exactly right. And and so now I want people to think what was being said when I mean well, let's go back to slavery and let's go to Reconstruction and Jim Crow and civil rights and 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 what was being said at the time about people who wanted that stuff to change. It, there's mm -hmm. some similar things that I hear now from people. And that really bothers me, but I think that more people are listening. And I frankly think that more white people need to speak about it and speak to each other about it and get some things out there and um, and not just silently abide by racism when they encounter it. Yeah, I, I think it's important that we define terms in here because one thing that i hear is oh everything's racist now uh every you, know, you can't say anything it's all racist well let's let's sort of define what we're talking about when we talk about racism here um there you know it, it's it's not like you know I, I think a lot of people define racism so if i see a black person i start foaming at the mouth that is a gross mischaracterization of what we're talking about um, and especially when we talk about systemic racism as well, and I, and I want to mostly talk about the latter, um, and which sort of feeds into the former. You look around at, at the country, you look around at everyone's lived experience. Would you say that the schools that are predominantly black are better or worse than the, the schools that are predominantly white? When you look at the housing areas, would you say that this, the housing that is predominantly black is traditionally usually generally better or worse than the housing that is predominantly white. Uh, when you look at salaries um, and when you look at median household income, would you say it's generally higher or lower than the average median household income of white households? Now, I think anyone that has paid any attention to the world would say, yeah, traditionally, uh, 
the the black homes and black schools are not as good as white schools and white homes and, and all of these things. Well, then it comes to okay, how do we how do we explain that away? Okay, do you believe that there is some sort of biological imperative that says, well, I guess the you know this is sort of their fault or they they're doing something wrong, or do you believe that some of these things can be explained by a lot of the systemic issues that? are so baked into the foundation of the country. Um, and, and when you are in power, you have no impetus to change. And when you deny that these things are issues, um, it's easy to sort of just kind of shrug them off. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about systemic racism. Um, you know, we, we talk about, you know, you look at the, the prison system, uh, you know, what black people are like 12% of uh, America and, uh, you know, 30 or 40% of the prison population. Do you believe that, um, black people are just genetically more predisposed to commit crimes. That's that's racism. Um, you know, you look at uh, you know, especially of course the impact of the drug war um, and and the racial implications of that. And and when people point to oh, you know, fatherless homes, you know, black on black crime, all of these things. Um, you know, we have a lot of evidence in the '80s and '90s that strict penalties did nothing to uh, de-emphasize. Is, uh, or uh, I sort I sort de-incentivize the use of drugs, and you look now, drug usage is pretty much the same um, around whites and blacks, and there's one group that goes to prison a lot more often. This issue that America is talking about right now is about police killing black people, but it is about so many more things. Um, when you have a touch point where so many people that are not black are angry. I think Jeremy Pruitt said it very well. White people are mad. Black people are mad. Young people are mad. Old people are mad. This is a, a blatant injustice. And it's a way to, to start the conversation. Why do these things happen? What else are we not seeing? George Floyd is not the first man to die uh, at the hands of police when he didn't need to. Um, and now we're seeing it, and I think people are having, a, obviously, a naturally visceral reaction to that. Um, and, and so when we talk about racism, we talk about systemic racism, we talk about, okay, how do we explain the disparities um, away you know, uh, from, from, from the, the disparity between black experience in America and the white experience away in America? And racism is sort of not seeing that equal. If you just say, well, that guy's just, they're just kind of lazy or, you know, black guys, they just don't, they just abandon their kids or, or this or that. These are, these are racist ideas. And uh, it, it is, it helps to fight racism when you hear that, or when you say that, uh, or when you hear someone say that or, or see it on social media or whatever, it helps to call it out because it, it helps people recognize, oh, that's not just a joke. That's a thing that perpetuates a stereotype that helps perpetuate um, a lot of uh, oppression in America. And so when we're talking about racism, you know, that's what we're talking about is explaining away disparities and and the belief that, well, you know, maybe just white people are like a little bit better. <laughs> that's what that's a racist idea. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and, you know, this brings to mind the work boots tweet, you know, that you called out this week uh, you know i mean that's and of course that turns into twitter fighting i think I, you and i both because I, I retweeted your comment and I, i'm actually forgetting who who had the tweet but basically it was all uh, the looters you know 
stole or whatever, but they didn't take the work boots, right? Yeah, Mike Huckabee, the former Arkansas governor. Yeah, who I was. Uh, I lived in Arkansas for my most of my life, so I've I'm well well acquainted with Mike Huckabee. Yes. Yeah, and that's flat out rooted in racism, and and then the argument is, well, there's white looters to it, right? But I, I, look, the arguing here, like David, I think in a, in so many areas, I I resist black and white as in it's either this or that. Like there's so much gray in a lot of things, but I do think when you really start talking about this topic, it it, it just as you said, much better than I could say, but. I mean, it kind of, it's it's like, okay, either you understand that, like, it's been, from 400 years, it's been about, you know, 50 now with a chance for some progress, still stifled and, and obstructed, but, you know, Civil Rights Act, I mean, there's things that got better and have been getting better, mm-hmm. but that's a short period of time, and so... Like, you can look at this and understand the history and how we got here. You know, uh, I mean, this has come up with Drew Brees talking about, you know, disrespecting the flag, which I just, it just boggles my mind that he could still believe that when so many people he should have been listening to have said that's not what it is. But this brings to mind black soldiers coming back from World War II and not having the same GI Bill benefits that the white soldiers. I mean, there's... You can go through history. So if you can look at all that stuff and understand why we're here, then I think like, there's a discussion. I mean, it doesn't have to be all pointing and you're bad, you're wrong. Um, I mean, we do want productive discussion. But, like, if you look at that and say, well, it's just it's their fault, you know? Like you said, I mean, that's racism. And, and that's what has to get better on the side of white people. I mean, you, some of it is just being informed and, and wanting to be informed. Yeah, and on the Drew Brees thing, you know, you, you, you've already sort of seen this idea that, oh, you can't even support the troops and people are mad or, you know, he's being dragged for having an opinion. He's not, he's not being dragged for having an opinion. He's being dragged for either being willfully ignorant, intellectually dishonest, or both. Um, there's, there's no in-between there. Um, you know, Colin Kaepernick peacefully protested this exact same issue three years ago. Um, bad faith actors hijacked his message, decided to make it about disrespecting the flag and, and disrespecting the troops. And, um, you know, honestly, I think they I think they sort of accomplished the mission there. It was never about that. Um, you know, he went out of his way. You know, Nate Boyer used to play at Texas. I covered him um, when he was with the Longhorns. He was a Green Beret. He had a uh, brief career in the NFL. I think he was long snapping for Seattle. And, you know, Kaepernick initially was sitting during the anthem, and he went and sat and met with Nate Boyer, and they had a discussion. And, of course, Boyer wanted him to stand, but they talked about it, and, and, and they said, you know, actually kneeling is, is more respectful when it comes to the military side of this thing. And Kaepernick agreed to do that. And, of course, you know, he was demonized and blackballed from the NFL by the same teams who are rushing to, you know, tweet black squares and talk about how they decry racism and injustice this week. So... You know, it's uh, Drew Brees had his opportunities to uh, educate himself on what's going on here, and if he just, you know, I, I guess if you just disagree with a lot of the, you know, 
points that people are trying to make, that's fine. But if you want to turn it into something else, like we saw three years ago, that's why people are so angry. Because it's not about that. It's about racial injustice in the country. It's not about the troops. It's not about the military. And you touched on that as well. And it's what I said at the top of this discussion. It's about asking the flag to, uh, or asking the citizens underneath the flag to hold up what the flag stands for, which is liberty and justice for all. And you look around, I, I don't see that. And that's what this is about. It is not about the troops uh, or the military or the Star Spangled Banner or whatever. Um, and that's that's when we're talking about Drew Brees. That's that's the whole thing. I, I did want to get into you know the focus on the on the, the rioting and the looting. Similar to the, um, it's different, but it's similar to the, the, the military and stuff like that. It's, it's hijacked um, a cause and a message. And whoever's doing it, it, it I, honestly, it doesn't matter. It's probably a lot of people. It's, it's, it's yes. black people. It's white people. It's, uh, you know, the radical leftist. It's the white supremacist. It's never as simple as one group. You know, you look at somebody's social media account and they're only retweeting, oh, this is, uh, you know, all this stuff. This is clearly who this is. This is clearly who this is. You, you don't know. There's no way to know. These things are happening nationwide. It's different in every city. This is why belaboring that whole point is is, is pointless. And, and this is why. Whoever is doing it, it doesn't make the pursuit of what's right any less worthwhile. It doesn't make the things that this is really about any less real. The criminal justice system and law enforcement need need reform in America. I think that there's there's good faith debate and a lot of discussion that has to happen on, on what does that look like. Um, but it adversely affects black people. It does. Uh, and, and this is about George Floyd, a man who was needlessly killed, and others. Uh, you know, I appreciate it again, Jeremy Pruitt, talking about Breonna Taylor, talking about um, Ahmaud Arbery. Um, and this goes back a long time. You know, uh, Emmett Till. I'm sure he would have been a hashtag in his day as well. Um, these are these are things that happen. That was not police, but police didn't do anything about that. And I think too, it is about the death, but it's about the lack of justice um, of these things. It takes a long time. Um, you know, you look at the Ahmaud Arbery thing. Two months between the incident and any, even an arrest. Uh, right. Couple days of the George Floyd video before the initial officers arrested. You have the other three officers standing around that were just arrested uh, today, I believe. So, yeah, it is about people dying, but you see this. Oh, well, you know, there's a lot. You know, police kill white people too. Okay, sure, but let's not just talk about the deaths. Let's talk about some of the things I talked about: prisons, uh, the prison system, arrests, uh, unnecessary sentencing, racism affects the education system it affects health care look at the stories and statistics black women in pain tolerance serena williams almost died because of it you know again housing there's so much things i haven't experienced it you know you talk about slum lords and and uh you know housing i haven't experienced it that level but i can tell you at least one occasion i tried to use my airbnb account to book a room and i was told i booked it and i sent in a thing and, it, and the owner was like i'm sorry that was mistakenly booked for that weekend it's it's not available i tried to rebook the next day with my wife's account and they accepted it <laughs> we ended up not staying there for obvious reasons but racism is so much of the country and it just it dates back so much to the founding of this land 
that to deny that things that were done in sixteen hundred in the sixteen hundreds and the seventeen hundreds and the eighteen hundreds and the nineteen hundreds don't echo into the two thousands is is just intellectual dishonesty to me. Well, David, I'm glad you brought up law enforcement because that is I think that's the area where people are certainly most afraid to say something, right? Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I think you've seen a lot of statements. I mean, hey, like basically every product that I, every brand I can think of, including products I didn't know existed, I, I'm getting emails with like MLK quotes in them. I mean, you know, like everyone has a statement right now. Very few of them address police, and it's very, and, and this is again, it's just like you said, you know, oh, they kill white people too, okay. Or you hear, um, oh, so you're saying all police are bad people. They're all yes. killers. No, yes. no. Th- th- again, this is taking what we're talking about. It's just like taking it and saying, ah, oh, leftist, liberal. No, no, no. no. A lot Let's of straw about- men being built in the last week or two. <laughs> right. And so, exactly. And so with police, I mean, the George Floyd situation is an, is not only tragic and horrific, and we've all seen the video, and it's very, very difficult to watch. This is an example of what needs to get better because he should not have been in position to do that based on, um, you know, his career to that point. And there's protection uh, where, you know, prosecutors know that if you prosecute a police officer, one of your police officers, there goes your police support. I mean, you know, so, I mean, this is what people are talking about is, yeah, bad apples, no question. Um, You know, there are... I mean, I've encountered so many, I think, from what I could tell. And, 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 and actually, I have, you know, a, a cousin married to a police officer. I mean, like, I've encountered terrific, wonderful police officers, okay? Everyone has, I'm sure. But if, if, if the bad apples, so to speak, are just recycled and protected, that's what happens. So people are very sensitive of, you know, ticking off police at large and trying to make it seem like they're saying all police are racist killers. That's not what is being said by anyone who's Absolutely actually not. wanting to engage in this conversation. Qualified immunity is a problem. It makes it very, very hard to hold police accountable. And you have people uh, you know, like the man who killed George Floyd uh, who have a long list of complaints against them for you know, abusing their power. Um, it should be easier to get these people not on the streets. And I think... Again, you talk about police training, you talk about all these kinds of things. There, are, there are, are tangible steps that we can take to make this better. It's not going to get fixed overnight. And like you said, this moment feels different. It feels like a lot of people who don't usually speak up are speaking up and seeing, you know what, this is, this is a problem. And I think, too, it's worth, it's worth touching on, you know, there's been police that have been killed in this, in this, uh, in this rioting issue. And, and yes. you always hear, what about black-on-black crime? You know, yeah, when you talk about Black Lives Matter, of course, you know, David Dorn was a a 77-year-old. I think he was a former police chief, but he was a business owner, I believe, and and he was killed in St. Louis. And you always hear, oh, does his life matter? Yes, his matter. His life mattered. It's a tragedy. Um, But I think it's a false equivalency to say that being killed in a riot or being killed in in gang violence, when you hear the black-on-black crime thing, it's not the same as being needlessly killed by an employee of a group in the police that's built to, as it says, on the cars and in their whole ethos to protect and serve. And again, while others stand around the the, the car and and watch, and they're charged with the same 
edict to protect and serve. I didn't see a lot of protecting. I didn't see a lot of serving. So when people die from rioting and, and those kind of things, it's terrible. I'm really saddened by that. Um, I wish it didn't happen. Um, but to hold that up as the same thing as, you know, a uh, policeman killing a guy over um, a counterfeit bill or uh you know anything that's that you know you talk about the Tamir Rice situation you talk about Tremir or, or Trayvon Martin you talk about all of these people that have been killed um and that uh you know since this has become a flashpoint in society it's just it's not the same and if you hold it up as the same well I think you're you're like we said you're, you're perpetuating some of those beliefs about black people that are not rooted in reality um you're saying well oh if he had just complied or you know well all these black people have their own problems. Why are they worried about the police? Well, black people do have their own problems. I think there's lots of cultural issues. Um, you know, the the uh, stigmatization of, of education or some of those sorts of things. And uh, But a lot of these things are, are things that uh, are not the same as, you know, systemic issues that make it very, very difficult. Um, and I think you always hear, too, Oh, I, you know, I think you, know, you hear this from uh, lots of folks, especially people who weren't raised, who are white and weren't raised with money. It's like, well, I worked for everything I had. I, I, I clawed my way up. I, I, yeah, people do. It, it does. It happens. It's great. It's a great American success story. The point is that the color of your skin was not held against you in that. No one's saying that, uh, uh, you know, when you have white privilege or you have, uh, you know, black oppression that it's impossible well these pro athletes they're these guys are millionaires and they're saying america is bad what well okay we want to we want to exalt the people at the top and we want to ignore the people on the bottom and that's not what america was built upon and that's what this whole discussion is about it's about hey let's make this better for everyone let's 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 uh you know a rising tide lifts all boats um, let's 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 do that. Let's work together uh, in that. And it's not being divisive. It's not being race baiter. It's acknowledging realities of the situation. And if people don't want to embrace that, if people want to argue otherwise, and um, you know, put their you know foot in the in the ground and draw a line in the sand and say you know, no, I'm not I'm not going to do this. Well. I would just encourage you to, to educate yourself and, and look at resources um, and, and, and really study the history of how this nation was formed and has grown. And again, I, I want to strive for a more perfect union. That's what we want here in America. I love America. I love living here. But it's disingenuous to, to acknowledge that there aren't issues that we can work together as Americans to solve. And it, it means having some difficult conversations. It means acknowledging some uncomfortable realities. That's not being divisive. That's being honest. And I would just encourage people to, uh, instead of digging in and saying, surely not, or relying only on your lived experience or what you've seen or what you know, listen to other people. Seek out things that challenge your worldview, things that challenge the things that, uh, that you believe. Um, and I think you'll, I think you'll learn some things. And, and that's, that's what I would say. Well, well said, you know, and, and I, I am like, I'm sympathetic to people who do, who are, you know, raised, you know, like not around diversity. I mean, I think that, you know, like I was very lucky, um, 
traveling around, <clears throat> excuse me, the world, <clears throat> sorry, you know, we lived in Saudi Arabia for three years, you know, my dad was in the army, military bases, um, a lot, you know, you grew up around a lot of different kinds of people. And so then, you know, that, that, if your life experience is like, gosh, there's all kinds of different people of any race, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's easier. And so I, I have sympathy for people who don't have that experience. <clears throat> but I also, like you said, like, I think <clears throat> at some point, I'm really sorry about all my uh, coughing here. Um, at some <laughs> point, <laughs> you know, at some point, you know, you, like, go ahead and try to experience that. And, and like you said, educate yourself. Like, the, the point here is, is like, not to be divisive. It's, let's talk about these things. And, the, and it, I hate to say there's a good thing about this, especially when you think of um, what happened to George Floyd. But I, I do think there's really some earnest, um, you know, efforts to talk about this and to keep it going after this, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a- after, because, you know, 2016 was, uh, there, there were a string of things like this <clears throat> that led to Colin Kaepernick. Uh, but it still feels like, okay, and then, you know, you know, we all went back to every, you know, went back to life as normal. Everything's fine. Um, you know, I, I just get the sense that there's going to be some lasting discussion and, and hopefully positive change from this. Yeah. Again, I, I think a lot of racism, in my experience, uh, I don't really want to get into uh, details necessarily. But the most common racism that I have encountered is the brand of racism that's just, I've never really had a conversation with another black person. <laughs> that's what it is. I know what I've seen on TV. I know what I've read or seen on cable news or whatever. I don't really know any black people. I don't have meaningful conversations with them. I don't really know what the answer to that is. Please do not text or friend random black people on Facebook and ask them things. <laughs> <laughs> but that is a brand of racism that I have personally experienced and seen a lot. Um, but again, this is not about politics. I'll close with this. It's not about politics. It's not about virtue signaling. It's not about you know leftist ideas. It's about I've I've really enjoyed my life. I have loved most portions of my life. But there have been some. Things in my life that I have experienced that I wrote about that I don't I don't want my kids to experience that I don't have any kids right now we're probably turning that corner before long I don't want them to experience those things and that's what this is about form a more perfect union for the people that come behind us and and still in them to do the same and digging in and saying these things don't exist plugging your ears going la 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 you people are just crazy it's not helpful it makes America worse, and I hope that people want to make America better. So that's all I have to say. Well said. Do you, do we do we need to close with food though? <laughs> I feel like I'm afraid the 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 show would get too long if we did. I will say uh, I've been experimenting with my air fryer, and I tried to revive some uh, some two day old cobbler. It didn't really work, but. Um, I love the air fryer, and I'm experimenting, and I got a lot more air fryer takes. That's all I have. For I'm food so this week. no, no. You have helped. <laughs> you've you've changed my life for the better because we bought a Ninja brand. It's like actually the grill. It's an indoor grill, which is great too, and that has been 
useful. But the air fryer, I mean, we put, you know, like, obviously you put like, like a frozen bag of fries in the oven. It's like, eh, but man, and that air fryer. Oh, and, yeah. Oh, the ba- yeah. So yes. Th- it's, it's been it's, like, it's completely, re- it's completely revitalized. The frozen potato game has been changed because they are largely a waste of time. I don't even bother with them, and now I'm all I'm all over it. I got some Nathan's fries that I got in there. Yeah, I got some Arby's fries that were just as good. It's it's incredible. Um, Joe, I appreciate you coming on for this podcast. Um, I appreciate you. I uh, I think you've, uh, you've done a really. Uh, I appreciate your thoughts and, and your perspective. Um, thank you guys for for reading and listening. Um, it was heartening to see, you know, the reaction to, to our stories. Um, you know, you hear a lot of, um, why does it have to be about race? Why does it always have to be about, again, I've talked about this. Uh, I, I think I explained why it's not always about race. It's about making the country better. And I think, uh, seeing how outnumbered, um, the really dismaying responses were to the folks saying like thank you for sharing this hearing from random people uh in the business and uh and people that i've covered um you know scott drew randomly texted me the other day and was like hey thanks for writing this you know see you back in texas Hmm. sometime soon um i think again i think people are 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 perking up and i think coaches are are taking this a little bit seriously uh, or more seriously than they did previously and i hope we can see some changes and i hope we can see some some people um, educating themselves and and electing um, people that are going to help aid those efforts and putting people in power um, that are going to make the country better and not worse. Um, and I think that can be uh, a huge help. So with that, I will wrap up. I am David Oven. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reading. Thanks for those of you who subscribe. If you haven't, I would suggest that you should. I think The Athletic is great, personally. My co-host, Joe Rexrode. Uh, columnist, senior writer, Athletic Nashville. Thank you, guys. We'll see you soon.